This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 1979. Martin Sheen goes over the river and through the woods to Colonel Kurtz's creepy corpse mansion deep in the jungle. The movie, Apocalypse Now. And welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where we are going through AFI's top 100 films of all time to find out if they're as good as people say. And we are finding out they are as good as people say. However, I'll say last week, people took a lot of offense to the fact that we did not like High Noon. You mean offenses and we should watch out because we're going to get challenged to a duel? Amy, does that mean we have to go around from podcast to podcast to see if we can round up a posse before that train full of listeners comes to town and kind of beats us up? I want Matt Gorley by our side. I think he's got a good <laughs> shooting eye. It was interesting, though, to hear people's passion about this film. And I, I would, for one, say I don't think this is a bad film, not by any stretch. No, it, me neither. Not at all. I would just say the most interesting thing about it is the story behind it. I thought it was really interesting. Some people who wanted to kind of bring things to light, like Sal Muscali, who said, you know, what he found so interesting about High Noon was that it broke the mold of the classic Western by showing us the strong silent type, but gave them moments of fear and uncertainty and even desperation. And I thought that was interesting. I was like, oh, wow, I think that that's such a part of the way we see heroes now, flawed. And that maybe, again, in the time, that was even really a, a heavy concept or an interesting concept to see. Well, yeah, and what's so interesting about that to me is how, like, John Wayne reacted. And he's like, no, 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 Rio Bravo, like, I want to correct this. I don't like seeing a weak hero. Yeah. I think the response to seeing someone be nervous is, yeah. is is just as fascinating. I guess what I just can't shake with Western films is that a Western film, by definition, just feels like it's saying something about America. Mm-hmm. And I just... That's what I. That's what. I, that's the lens I can't help looking at all of these things through. I, you know, I think that that's an interesting point because um, Mark Kilmer brought up this idea that westerns were kind of this uh, the sci-fi of the fifties. You know, and I think that that's so interesting because sci-fi I think has taken that mantle of like 
what are we saying about society? But it's a small town. We can see it on a different scale. Yeah. Well, and I feel like that's what we're doing with our horror films now. Yeah. Like horror right. films are now seizing the mantle back from sci-fi films and saying like, here is where we talk about all of the horrible things we're not like nervous to put out in plain English. Yeah. I mean, like just, the purge. Oh, I mean, yeah. And it's and like, look, the perfect example right now. I mean, get out. I think the reason why that pulled everybody together in a way was because it was saying something, but it was also effective as a horror film, which by the way, Amy brings up a podcast that you're working on right now over at the ringer network. Can you tell us a little bit about this? I think people would love to hear about it. Okay. I was not trying to talk into a plug, but yes, I have spent the last couple months while watching very good films, watching one other film, Halloween over and over and over and over and over again, yeah. the 1978 version. Ooh. Cause we're doing this uh, big podcast miniseries, just breaking down Halloween, everything about it, everything it means. Yeah, I've been talking to like, child psychologists and serial killer experts. There's fear experts out there. I've been talking to them. I've been talking to everybody. Uh, tourists from the town where John Carpenter grew up and John Carpenter and Jamie Lee Curtis. And I don't know, I'm realizing there is a way to watch a movie so much that you just have it absolutely in your breath. I've started dressing like Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, wow. Anyway, what do you think about this dark. new movie? I've seen it. It's pretty oh, good. Oh, really? Oh, I'm very, <laughs> very excited. Uh, well, I'm so excited to listen to that. And, um, what I think I love about our listeners and the way that they've been watching movies intently is uh, this kind of live watch that the Unspooled group on Facebook has been doing. Do you know how that has been going down, actually? A little bit. It seems really awesome that, you know, if you join the Facebook group for Unspooled, what I think is happening is every week they pick a time and then there's this website called rab.it, like R-A-B-B dot I-T. Okay. And I think it's possible for everybody to watch the film together at the same time, no matter where you are. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So they're coordinating like the time and date and how to absolutely do it on the Unspooled Facebook yeah. page. But I love that idea. I love the idea of like a community of people just hanging out even in their different living rooms. Jump on that live watch if you'd like. I think it's going to be great. And uh, I'm excited very much to talk about today's feature presentation. But I think we need a little bit of wisdom because last week oh, we right. asked people to call in and in their best Marlon Brando voice, speak some truth to us. You ready for this? Yes, I'm very excited for this. I saw a snail slithering on the railroad track. I put a red shirt in with my white in the washing machine, and it all came out pink. Just like a squirrel can get too fat from eating too many nuts, comfort makes you stupid. You were cursed with a cadence, which melting like a lamppost was given legs only to trip on its shoelaces. You know, if there's a dime left in your pocket. You don't have a pocket. Now you can lead a horse to water, but you can't have your cake and eat it too. When you go in the grocery store and you're looking for nuts, some tins say shelled. You'd think shelled nuts would mean nuts in their shells, but it really means nuts without their shells. That's the lie they tell you. That was awesome. Uh, and now I'm very excited to talk about our feature presentation. Okay, Amy. Number 30 on the AFI Top 100 Best Films of All Time list, Apocalypse Now, comes out in 1979. It's rated R. 
147 minutes because we didn't watch the redo. We watched the original release version. It's, Which is probably going to be our rule like for all this stuff. We get that question a bit. We're going to yes, be classic here. Exactly. And it stars Marlon Brando, Martin Sheen, Robert Duvall, Frederick Forrest, uh, Sam Bottoms, Lawrence Fishburne, Harrison Ford, uh, Dennis Hopper. It's, it's a who's who of 70s casting. And, of course, directed by Francis Ford Coppola and written by John Milius. Amy, can you tell us a little bit about this film? Yeah, Apocalypse Now is this kind of modernish riff where it transplants Joseph Con- Conrad's The Heart of Darkness into the Vietnam War. It's about a guy who is, like, slightly traumatized, slightly screwed up in the head. Captain, that's played by Martin Sheen, he gets this job to go into the jungle on this riverboat, cross the border into Cambodia, where he is supposed to terminate, that means kill in very polite language, Colonel Kurtz, played by Marlon Brando, who has gone off the deep end and is killing everybody. And also his biggest killing sin is that he's just not obeying anybody's command. He's a god now. It's, I mean, one of the most quintessential 70s films. I think when you look at this decade, it is up there with, you know, a taxi driver and, and Godfather. It's, it's, you know, I think the perceived idea, like this is a filmmaker at his peak. It is also the peak of excess. Um, you know, this movie visually blows me away. I'm like, wow, it, it just is, it's gorgeous, but it's also like <laughs> you could never do any of this because it's all practical now. Yeah, and, it's just straight up burning trees. We don't oh, like trees. Yeah. Trees are gone. No, I mean, I'm like, I, my jaw dropped a few times at this film. To me, you know how we were talking about E.T. is like a fish tank mover. It's like, I don't know where I began and I don't know where yeah. E.T. ends in my ethos. Apocalypse Now has that same thing with just the movie and then the story of how the movie is made. Yes. I think both of these things blend together so much that it's really hard to piece them out, to look at this film's placement on a list, 30, which is really high, Yeah. and figure out how much of that is for the movie and how much of that was because this is like a fucking really hard movie and it almost broke Francis Ford Coppola. Well, I mean, if you like Apocalypse Now, you have to watch Hearts of Darkness, which is the documentary they made while they were on set. They're... It is one of my favorite filmmaking docs I've ever seen. And they do go hand in hand because you're getting people in the moment, which I think is so much more engaging than the retroactive Francis Ford Coppola in 2015 at Cannes talking about this film. Like, who cares about that? It's retroactive. Let me tell you my stories. I want to hear them in the moment. Let's just even go back a little bit further and talk about this movie, which was supposed to be directed by George Lucas, who couldn't get the project kind of going and went off to make Star Wars. So think about that. Like, George Lucas wanted to make this movie as a uh, a black and white film shot like a doc. So you it felt like you're actually watching like a war newsreel. That didn't quite happen. Um, and then Francis Ford Coppola tries to make this movie has the hardest time, so much so that there's a story that he threw his five Oscars out of a window. He's like, if I can't make this movie, who can make it? Threw him out. His Oscars break on the ground. And like, I think his mother or his grandmother like took his Oscars and like brought them to the Academy. He's like, can you fix these? Francis, you broke your Oscars <laughs> because you were very mad. And, you know, I think when you think about Francis in this time and when you hear him talk about this movie, this is like... This is the filmmaker that everyone parodies, right? I mean, it, it is the bold, ambitious, like, 
blow it the fuck up. Like we're here. You know, the movie was supposed to be uh, 16 weeks. It took 16 months. You know, it's like, it's insane. Yeah. But, the movie was supposed to be like $12 million. It was 31. I mean, you're using the nice words of ambition. I'm yeah. going to also throw in egomania. <laughs> Do you even know why this happened? I mean, like basically the screenwriter, John Milius was inspired to write the screenplay because his college English professor, Erwin Blacker at USC said uh, no screenwriter has ever perfected a film adaptation of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. So he took that as like a challenge and kind of was mapping out this story and then partnered up with Coppola and then wrote it uh, based on that. But I, I thought that was interesting like that it came out of a challenge. It wasn't like, oh, I want to do it like this. It was like no one has done this great. Yeah, I okay. When I look at when I look at Apocalypse Now and when I look at these guys, I mean, mm-hmm. here's here's the thing we should maybe just say as like a yeah. grounding thing. George Lucas and Milius go to college together. They go to USC film school. There's this kind of clique of guys who all knew each other. It's sort of like, you know how I imagine early days of UCB where Mm -hmm. everybody grows up and they take over the world in their different directions, but there's this core. I mean, that's what USC was in like the late 60s, early 70s. You have the George Lucas branch of it where he's like getting to know everybody, where he and Milius are like buddies. And then right after there, you get like the John Carpenter branch of it where he's like there and building his own army. Yeah. But so they were all buddies in college, and they're in college at a time where being in college means they're not in the Vietnam War. Right. So these guys didn't fight in the Vietnam War, but they were fascinated by the Vietnam War. And I think they made some war films to be like, we get it, man. Uh, we get it. I mean, because Milius tried to be in the war, um, but he was rejected. He was 4F because he had asthma. Oh, well, you, well, you know what's interesting? I, I think we have to talk about this film in comparison to Platoon, because we've watched Platoon, and they're— Two interesting films. And in a way, when we got this assignment to watch this film, I I had like a, oh, okay. Uh, I've seen Apocalypse Now probably uh, three or four times. But it it seemed like it was going to be like like one of those movies. Like, all right, it's, you know, two and a half hours. I'm going to get into it. And I quickly found myself really in there with it. And in a way that was very different than Platoon. Because it is a war film. But I would argue... It's more of like the odyssey. It, it, it's, it's the war is the background. The war isn't the foreground. And I think there's more of a statement about soldiers and war than it is about Vietnam, if that makes sense. This is like a movie uh, not about Vietnam as much as it is the backdrop of yeah, Vietnam. Yeah, it's like a surrealist movie, you know, yes. like the crazy colors. It's got... I mean, one of the most basic mythological stories is man on boat in river. I mean, you get yeah. that all the way to, like, the Greeks going to Hades, the well, two odyssey. Yeah. You know, man on boat going somewhere is as old as about anything we've got. You know, you are showing war, and you're showing Vietnam in a way that probably people had not seen it before. But it also doesn't have the weight of a war movie, if that makes sense. It it has more of the weight of an adventure. You know, it's a, you know there's ambiguity in it about war, but it's not like a— I hate to say it's not a war movie, but I, that's my—that's how I feel about it and watching it. It didn't feel like that. I mean, to me, it feels like a war movie as imagined by guys who didn't really get war, but they got, like, trauma mm. and soul stuff. I yeah. mean, even Martin Sheen, like, he was also 4F. Like, this right. is a war movie made by people who didn't know anything about the war, but they thought they did, some right. of them. Like, Milius. Milius has this buddy who went to Vietnam, and it was this buddy who told him the story about, like, you know how— 
all these um, little kids getting inoculations. And then like the Viet Cong come in and cut everybody's arm off. Milius heard that story from his guy and it has never been confirmed. It seems like the guy basically made it up. Right. But Milius was like, yeah, that's going in, man. You know, like they're, they're right. just taking all their guilt basically that I think they felt. This is my, this is my hot take. Yeah, yeah. That apocalypse now is like, there's some guilt in there. These guys didn't go to Vietnam. So they made their own Vietnam by making this movie the hardest way possible and going insane. And I also think it comes out in what you're seeing happen. You know, it's like death in this movie is only really treated with an extreme gravity when our main character kills someone, right? It, it happens when Martin Sheen, uh, you know, kills that woman on the boat when they're raiding the boat and they find the puppy. That's the moment uh, really where you're like, oh, death, Vietnam, it's dark. But there is some incredibly violent scenes. If you pair up the scenes that we saw in Platoon, where, you know, when Robert Duvall is coming into that village and just they're blowing the shit out of it and they're dropping napalm, like, yeah, fuck yeah, we're the best. It, like, And it's interesting because I found this movie lacks a gravitas. You know, it's not about that. And you're almost watching it the same way that you would watch a cowboy in Indians film, you know? And so it's interesting to see that perspective on it. Their take on war is like, it's good guys versus bad guys. And the the most bad are these two kind of professional soldiers, Kurtz and, and Willard. But that's where they're seeing the bad, not in like, let's blow up the fucking village and kill all these people. Like it, which is an odd thing. Like you could never get away with that now, I think. Yeah, it's super weird. I mean, there's a story that, you know, of course, like, the Ride of the Valkyrie scene is like the most famous scene here, yeah. you know, where it comes in and there's the chopper and, oh, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. And it kind of upset Francis Ford Coppola a little bit that when they started screening this movie for test audiences, that in the comment card, everybody's like, that's the most badass part of the movie. And he's like, oh, it's also supposed to be shitty. But the badass part is what lingers. The badass part is yes. what, what you think of. Well, I th- I think that the, the character that speaks the most truth. And it's it's that one kind of amazing line at the end that Marlon Brando says, we teach our boys to drop fire on people and yet won't let them write the word fuck on their airplanes. Kind of making the most anti-war statement in the film. But the rest, it seems cool. It's like, let's go surfing. I mean, not cool, but this just feels like we're on the side of the good guys. Let's go, let's go, you know? Yeah, although even the word good's a little weird. Yes. I mean, because like... Martin Sheen himself, if there's, like, one big notable thing about the way he plays this character is the word I would use is numb. Yes. Like, he's non-responsive to almost anything. He's non-responsive to people getting mowed down. He's non-responsive to screaming. Like, he's non-responsive to Vietnam. He seems very, very numb to all of it. Well, did you feel in a way that, like, Charlie Sheen is the before and Martin Sheen is the after in the sense of, like – because we're seeing – this movie through the eyes of Martin's character who is been through it. He is numb to it. He is a quote unquote like professional soldier. You know what? I'm going to squeeze this right in here while we're talking about like the sheens because yes. this is probably my best chance to play this Hot Shots clip. Oh, I love this one. So picture Charlie Sheen uh, going down river and Martin Sheen coming down the opposite way. Uh, they're both doing narration and this happens. Somebody once wrote, hell is the impossibility of reason. That's what this place feels like, hell. We get up at five. At first I thought they'd handed me the wrong dossier. I couldn't believe they wanted this man dead. Third generation West Point, top of his class, Korea, airborne, about a thousand decorations, etc., etc. 
great. It's so funny, never got it until many years later. Exactly. You know, I think in many respects, the character I was obsessed with is the surfer who's on the boat. When you watch his journey, it's a dark fucking journey. Like from moment one where we see him kind of sunning himself on the boat to the end where he's, you know, in this kind of camo makeup and, you know, he's put his friend to death in the river and he's with Martin Sheen. Like his character makes the most kind of drastic dark turn, but he's in the background a little bit. It's true because I would almost argue that I don't think Martin Sheen's character does really any turn. No. You know, he's numb at the beginning. He's numb at the end. I mean, the the movie even starts with the scene of him in his hotel room Accidentally, it's accidental. I'm saying accidental because it was accidental for yep. Martin Sheen. Um, this early scene that you have at the beginning of the movie, they got him really drunk on his birthday and kind of set him loose in a hotel room. So he's wasted. Martin Sheen was an alcoholic at this time. He bursts a mirror. He cuts his hand. And in character, while blackout drunk, he decides to smear blood all over his face. I mean, that's just who he is at the end. He's like still right. smearing himself in blood. And the idea that they're even playing the song, this is the end at the beginning. Right. I mean, it is just everything. It's just there's well, no – he goes on this long trip, but he kind of goes nowhere. Well, it's interesting because also that scene where he punches the mirror, that was brought on by Coppola taunting him about just being a pretty face. He was like, you're just nothing. You're just a pretty boy. And, and it was like playing upon – that idea that people wouldn't cast him in this role because he had no, he was nothing more than that. So he punches in the mirror in that way. So the idea that, like, that Coppola is just like preying on that fear and, and brings him to that level, which I think is great. And I think that opening scene lets us go, we know that you're mad. We know that you are a little bit off the deep end. And then when we see him with people, he can't show that side of himself. We live with him in, in the monologues and stuff, but he is Kurtz. Like he's just... Kurtz without going off the reservation, if that makes sense. You know, I think it, I think of them as two parallel people. They respect each other. They admire each other. Just one decided to go, you know what? I'm doing things my way. And the other one is playing by the own, his own rules. But he's they've both been broken by the same system, if that Wait, makes sense. that is an interesting observation because, like, the most emotion we see out of him is in that first scene. And it's the only scene where he's really alone. It's the only time, I think. And that's why I love that opening scene because – we, the audience, go, oh, this guy's not well, but he can't show it to anyone else. And I thought that was the coolest thing about, you know, the movie. So when we go into it, I think his journey is respecting the hell out of this guy. This, the, he's going off to kill this man who, like, he doesn't have to read all that information on him. He doesn't need to get all this background on this guy. But I think he's kind of, like, falling in love with him because I, I think he sees something of, in, in Kurtz that he sees or feels within himself. I mean, to me, like, what's the most kind of surprising thing about the whole morning sequence is that when the military people show up to give him this mission, he is naked and still a little weird, like, coming into right. being a normal person. And they don't care at all. They yeah. have seen this before. Like, their reaction of absolute numbness to him I find really shocking. They're just like, oh, it's another dead one. It's almost as if the military uses him as a blunt instrument. He's a tool, just like a gun, just like anything else. And when that weapon ceases to be important, they get rid of it. And he is a weapon sent in to kill a former weapon, you know? And and there's like all this great dialogue that kind of gives you this great backstory on Kurtz, like that, you know, he ran these renegade missions. And if the public didn't catch wind of it, he would have been, you know, demoted, but yet he was promoted. And, you know, and so you get to see almost just the, the way that the, 
army works. You know, it's sort of like he threatened to quit, then he got in the Green Berets, and he was older than everybody. But, you know, it's like this idea that if you just force your way in, you can kind of raise yourself through the ranks, which, though, knowing that none of them were in the war, I don't know how true that is either. So Yeah, it seems very the ends justify the means. Right. You know, like— if you win, it's okay. And right. I mean, of course, the irony is like you didn't win Vietnam, and it's not okay. To set the tone for who John Milius is, the guy mm-hmm. who wrote this, I want to say uh, a couple quick facts about John Milius as yeah. well. Number one, John Milius claims with some reason that he invented the UFC fighting octagon. What? Yeah. So that that's fun fact about okay. Milius, uh, to put that in your context of Milius. Yes. Two, and this one is maybe even more um, – Relevant to our movie listeners, Mm -hmm. John Milius is also rumored to be the inspiration for Walter Sobchak, the John Goodman character in The Big Lebowski. And here's a line from Walter that I just want you to keep in your head when you're thinking about John Milius talking to us about what war is really like, man. If you don't calm down, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Lady, I got buddies who died face down in the muck so that you and I can enjoy this family restaurant. All right, I'm out of here. Yeah, that that's Milius. Uh, and also, if you look up interviews with him, which yeah. I did pull one for later, he looks exactly like that. That's really funny. You know, you talked a little earlier about that line, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Also, that's a line that Milius hated, which is interesting because the Sobchak version of it would be like, that would be like his defining line. But he thought that line was way over the top. You know, one thing that he said, too, that I liked about Vietnam, and I don't know if I agree with it, but I thought it was interesting. He referred to the Vietnam War as the California War since California was so immersed in culture at the time. He said that he wanted to add a surfer to his team, whereas, you know, oftentimes in World War II movies, you would add, like, someone from the Bronx. He just felt like that the passions of California were more at play and, like, the peace of that. I don't I don't know if I agree with it. I just think it's an interesting point of view about Looking at Vietnam. I mean, I guess when you hear all that doors for sure. And we do have our Bronx guy. And Milius was actually a surfer as well. Here's one of the surfing ones. I like this one because it sounds like a fake out. This is uh, Robert Duvall talking to the surfer dude, Lance, as he's like blowing up an entire town so they can go surf. A weird fun fact about that scene, you know, when they shot that scene, there was some surfing. They left their surfboards there. And the story is the kids who actually lived there picked up the surfboards in the Philippines and started to learn how to surf because they left the surfboards behind. And now there is actually like a little surf camp there. You can go and surf. (laughs) That's a great little side effect. I mean, I feel like this movie made its imprint on where it shot. I mean, it was there for you know, 16 months. It's such a huge time. In that time, uh, you've heard, you know, Martin Sheen had a heart attack. Uh, Coppola tried to kill himself like three times, had a nervous breakdown. These people were, you know, barely finishing this movie. And I would even say, you know, in the sense of like crediting Milius as a screenwriter, when you listen to this interview with Martin Sheen in 1979, this is when they're in Cannes. They're showing the film for the first time. And this is what he says about the film. What we are seeing here at Cannes is not a finished print, is it? That's right, and that's very important to uh, understand. Francis is still in the process of uh, uh, editing as well as uh, scoring, and I have uh, a lot more narration to complete on the picture. Michael Hare is, has written a narration. He's still at, at work 
writing uh, for the picture. And and as far as I know, uh, they're not settled yet on the ending of the picture. So uh, I, I have no idea what uh, the ending or whether both endings are going to be shown here in Cannes. And maybe he'll, you guys will help him decide. I don't know. <laughs> so that's so interesting to me because, you know, obviously Milius is you know, credited with writing the script. But here is someone, this other guy, Michael Hare, who is writing all the narration, which I'd argue is a large chunk of the dialogue in the film. Yeah, and Hare, I think, was an actual author, like more of like a literary, journalistic, Hunter S. Thompson kind well, of type, which is why all the words that he writes, I feel like, don't actually sound like they're coming from Martin Sheen. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was a, a Vietnam War correspondent. And, uh, and I thought that was so interesting, yeah, because it feels more like a documentarian kind of talking about the movie Apocalypse Now in Apocalypse Now. He's a little Ken Burnsian. <laughs> <laughs> and I just did a little bit of research about the ending of the film. He said there's multiple endings. So the original ending in Milius' script had the North Vietnamese forces attacking Kurtz and his followers in a giant climactic battle, but Coppola kind of scrapped that because he felt it didn't fit with the movie he was making. Instead, he took the advice of his UCLA friend Dennis Jacob and actor Dennis Hopper to create a more mythical ending fitting the concepts of death and rebirth using the story of the Fisher King found in books like The Golden Bough and the poetry of T.S. Eliot. Um, which is actually something that Kurtz has in the film. But he devised this whole new ending where Willard would kill Kurtz and then become the follower's new king, which didn't even really happen anyway. So you have this movie that in the beginning, the footage at the beginning is kind of stuff that was thrown out. The ending is something that's not even the two intended endings. The writer who does the majority of the writing isn't even like writing it. It's, it's a real like mishmash of different things, but it all kind of worked out. Yeah, I mean, everything you're explaining is why I feel like we just as a culture should put the biggest asterisks on things like <laughs> masterpiece and auteur theory because right. really when you look at everything, every film like this, especially something like this, this big, that's not like I'm a dude at Sundance, it's my directorial debut, right. I did it in my backyard. Everything like this is tons of people's input Tons of choices that the director didn't actually make himself, but will totally take credit for later. The fact that films come together at all, when you really look at them, is like a crazy miracle. That's why, like, the number one thing I want to do is just hang out in an editor suite, because I've never gotten to do that as a critic. Oh, it's the best. Oh, it's all I want. And they don't really want you in there as a critic. You know, they don't want you to see, like, how it what? could have been. The editing room is the most powerful room in the entire process of making film, because you are only as good as your editor. Yeah, and it's the one we talk about kind of the least, honestly. You 100%. Know? Everything yeah. we talk about is like, director this, this director God, this right. director who's basically Colonel Kurtz of the set, making it happen, leading yeah. the charge. I think like, a lot of the credit to this movie, I think, has to go to Richard Marx and Walter Murch, who did a lot of editing on this film. I mean, uh, you know, and Walter Murch is a sound editor who was then editing the film. It's crazy. I mean, everyone was doing something. This movie was kind of divinely put together. And it wasn't like, it wasn't put together like a, a normal film. It just, it seems like a lot of luck. Yeah, or a lot of swagger. Okay, right. Paul, I'll just be honest. Yeah. I don't really like this movie very much. You don't much. like it. I don't, I don't, I don't. I okay. just, I... When I look at this movie, I do just see the egos first okay. about it. Yes, it was really hard to be Francis Ford Coppola and make this movie. 
Yes, he was still like having people fly him Kobe beef in from Japan and pasta from Italy and like living very large and having the locals hand dig him a swimming pool with their bare hands and yet refusing to pay a lot of his grips. And yes, he made it very, very, very hard on himself. And I don't have a lot of sympathy for him. (laughs) I think he was sort of like, I'm the coolest. I did The Godfather 1 and 2. I can do anything. Oh, I kind of can't. And I feel like he set himself on fire, and then everybody was like, oh, my God, he set himself on fire. How wonderful. We should really give him, like, all the praise in the world. Well, I feel like there's a lot of elements that seem like, especially after watching the movie, you didn't need to do as much as they did. Like, I I think the thing that is mind-blowing to me and that is impressive are these beautiful shots from the first shot, which was found in a junk bin in the first cut of the movie, you know, these trees burning and these multiple helicopters landing and taking off and boats crashing through huts. Like, you have these tracking shots in this movie that are just stunning. Like, it, like from a filmmaking perspective, I was in awe. Like, of all the moving pieces. Like, and then that, it should be applauded. But... It seems like lack of preparation and ego fueled the 16 months, not process and work. Yeah, I think in a way this movie gets salvaged a bit because of our empathy for him. And because it is so big. And I'm, I mean, if you were ever to ask me like my favorite type of movie, I will always say an ambitious disaster. So I can right. get it. I can get it and being like, wow, it is an ambitious disaster. This is right. the sort of movie I tend to go a little easy on even. Right. I guess I just wish it was about a little bit more than, like, absurdism and Odyssey references and violence and blood and yeah. Well, I think we both are responding to the same thing and probably taking different things out of it. I found it to be a little bit of a relief in watching it again and thinking when I was watching it the first time, like, this is a war movie. This is what war movies are. I've, of course, grown. I've seen many more things. I've seen movies that have made more powerful statements about war, about Vietnam, even on this podcast. So in watching it, it felt breezy. And I and I, and I I enjoyed it almost. And I kept on writing down, like, this is like an, an action movie. It, 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 I don't think the grand statements are grand. I, I, I think it's a very basic film. And in a way... I wish it was saying a little bit more. I know Coppola will say, well, it's an ambiguous movie. You get what you want out of it. And I can see that, but I also feel like that maybe the point of view wasn't properly prepped or being able to be thread throughout it. Yeah, like there's something in this movie that I find very incurious. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying like this movie has to tell the story of the Vietnam War. And I'm kind of, and I'm glad it doesn't. Like I, I admire that they take a step away from being like, we will be the definitive history. You know, one of the things Mm -hmm. they cut out was like a detour at a French colonial mansion where they were like, here's what the French did, blah, 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 blah. Here's why we're here. Right. Like it's, they don't need any of that. Like I I don't mind. But yet they put it back in for the redo. You know, ego's gonna ego, man. Right. Yeah. I know. It's such a bizarre thing. Like when you do, like, what do you think about that when a filmmaker goes back to a classic and gives you more? You know, it's weird. I don't always feel like filmmakers are the best judge right. of it. I, I listened to this this podcast where they interviewed Chris McQuarrie where he says, you know, I don't believe in deleted scenes because they're deleted for a reason. And it's like showing people like, you know, like the construction. I don't want to show people that. And I feel like it's interesting. I, I just think it's interesting when you have a film that is this lauded 
that you go back in, you kind of messy it up. It's like going like, I just want to finish the Mona Lisa a little bit more. Let me put a, let me change her hair a little bit. Yeah, it's a weird. It's very George Lucasy, which right. you know makes sense because Francis Ford Coppola, like he hired George Lucas as his assistant for seven years before George Lucas made Star Wars. You know, they're a buddy. Like when he started to run out of money making Apocalypse, now he was like, George Lucas, you just made Star Wars. Can you loan me some money? Wow. Also, Star Wars fun fact, you know that Harrison Ford shows up in this movie. Harrison Ford shot this before he was famous for Star Wars. Right. So it was sort of like this, da-da-da, we got Star Wars guy in here. I want to play this clip just because I really like how he stumbles over the death order. It's actually, I think, a really lovely piece of acting. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat. <clears throat> Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. Follow it. Learn what you can along the way. When you find the... Colonel infiltrate his team by <clears throat> whatever means available and terminate the colonel's command. I don't know if he actually called in the Lucas favor, but kind of the deal was Francis mortgages house or his vineyard house, and he was worried that he would lose the house. Also, I feel even bad just calling it Francis because it was like Francis and his wife. He made yes. this decision and his wife also was like in risk of losing his ha- right. her house. His wife who was there the whole time, his wife who he cheated on like while he was making this movie because he felt so bad about his self-esteem that he was like, I need a girl to tell me I'm cool. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he put like her life on the line too. And her notes are what ended up becoming a lot of like the documentary Hearts of Darkness. Yeah. She was there when he like talks about risking everything on this, which I think is part of why we're like, yeah, he was so brave. He risked everything. Part of the story is that George Lucas was like, look, if you have to sell your house, I'll just buy your house and then you can like buy it back from me. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, well, actually, here's a clip of Francis Ford Coppola on the Merv Griffin show talking about his whole plan where he's sort of like, yeah, it wasn't as big of a deal. If it had been a disaster, what would you have done? Well, being realistically, I mean... Bankruptcy? No, I mean, bankruptcy, I'm a, I'm a large motion picture director. I can go out and get a job and make in a year what most people don't even dream about ever having in their lives. So it would be a sin for me not to risk what I had earned because I can make it back again. And that's what, to me, the trust is. The reason I can make that much money is because I'm going to really give it my best shot. And that means in the Apocalypse case, that meant putting up all the stuff you're worth. So I did it. I mean, it, uh, to me, it is not as amazing. I'm surprised that people are surprised. But that's so funny because when you see him on set, it's a definitely different Copa. This is like what you get of Copa on set. My greatest fear is to make a really shitty, embarrassing, pompous film on an important subject, and I am doing it. I confront it. I acknowledge, I will tell you right straight from the most sincere depths of my heart, the film will not be good. I don't feel like going to school. You finish your term paper and maybe you get a B instead of an A plus that you wanted. So you get a B. But I'm going to get an F. I mean, it's interesting to see that bravado and then in the moment not knowing anything. I think this movie... You know, he got lucky and wanted to bring himself and torture himself with this. Like, here, I'll say some nice things about it. How's mm-hmm. that? Can I say some nice things about it? Yes. To make sure, like, nobody does their apocalypse now to come and find me in this podcast studio and, like, <laughs> murder me because I don't like this movie Pop that up much. from your bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, structurally, one of the things I think is interesting is what apocalypse now has to say about the shift from civilization to non-civilization. Right. You know, this huge gap you see from... Uh, Willard being taken into, like, his officer's headquarters where he's being told about this mission and how there's, you know, roast beef on the platters and how they're living in this house that is 
almost like foreign to me with like how much stuff they own. You know, there's taxidermy. There's it looks like, like you're walking in a bucket. house in the middle of Kansas. It, it, it's 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 almost like your grandma's house. It's a grandma's house. There's so much stuff in this house that is a grandma's house. They yeah. have salad forks. Do you yes. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it is an overdone civilization house. And by the end, you go from this like cold platter of roast beef to like an actual cow just getting slaughtered straight in front of you. Yeah. You know, and there's this like bracketing of like one group of type of civilization and the other type of civilization, you know? Well, it's like, isn't that the idea? Like we don't want to see how the sausage is made. Like literally you don't want to see how that meat was brought to you, but you just want to have it and you want to enjoy it. You exactly. know, and it, yeah. like you don't really eat meat. I eat meat. And that's right. the thing I wrestle with a lot is yeah. like, I'm not allowed to be all judgy about this when I'm also going to eat that. Right. There is one thing that I sort of wish was going on here a little bit, which is that when they make Apocalypse Now, like when they even start like really, really writing it again, you know, before they go to the jungle, people were talking about the inspiration of this book already. You know, the Conrad novella, Heart of Darkness. People were already starting to be like, you know, maybe this book shouldn't be on quite the pedestal that it is. Mm -hmm. Like Chinua Achebe gave this like lecture, this really famous lecture in 1975, uh, calling the novella like this quote, offensive and deplorable book that dehumanized Africans and saying that it mm. blinkered with xenophobia. And so they were aware that there were par- that, that there were perils in making a story like this that basically right. transplanted it to Vietnam. And they didn't really change anything about it. You know, they just sort of like muscled forward. Well, it doesn't treat the people of Vietnam like they're human. I, I think that this is why when Platoon comes out, it, and I would even say Full Metal Jacket has elements of this, but but Platoon is showing you what it was like from a soldier's perspective. And I think you can't, you can't fake that funk. I, I can't write a movie about war because I haven't been in war. And, and, and you I think- You could it. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but I, and I think that that's what this movie kind of feels like. I think it takes away certain elements. So I do believe that like, there's no respect for the culture or the people. Yeah, like one of the things that kind of made Vietnamese audiences mad is that they kept this scene from you know the book, which is like, I think from 1899. Mm-hmm. Where uh, the ship's captain gets, like, pierced through with an arrow. Yes. yes. Spear. So, yeah, spear. So they have that here in, in um, the movie, too. And somebody from Vietnam is like, okay, a couple of things. One, Vietnam is actually a very crowded place, and it would never look this empty. Two, we were not killing people with spears. Who do you think we are? Well, it was so funny when I saw that. I was like, this seems so, like, incongruous to the way that they were fighting. It, like, spears. I mean, that that feels so old world Africa kind of like, you know, and also the amount of spears that are flying in that scene to get that kind of a thing to go through someone's chest. It almost felt like a shitty horror movie from the eighties. And it's more for effect than anything else. I mean, I think even the grandeur in which, you know, Kurtz has his compound, you know, it's so, you know, he's embedded in the culture, but it doesn't seem like he's embraced the culture. It just seems like he's kind of co-opted the, like, he's like, well, this, this temple will now be my temple because I am a god now. You know, it's the most telling moment was when they're doing that big helicopter raid and they've just mowed down families and people in this whole village. And this one woman runs up to the helicopter and throws a grenade in and, you know, and there, and they, and it, it just gets the ire up of these soldiers, like savage, she's a savage. And they just kind of hunt her down. And I felt like that was the most kind of interesting statement in the film in a way, because it's like, oh, that you're showing me something here. You're saying like, we just destroyed this whole community, yet she's a savage for trying to blow up one of our helicopters. Yeah, that whole sequence is so interesting and complicated and scrambling to me. It's it's a taxi driver type of scene because it starts with us seeing 
very clearly how orderly and civilized and loving this town yes. is. Seeing the kids going to school, I think that woman is one of the teachers. Even like seeing how they weren't hurting anybody, right. and then these guys come in to blow it up for like a surf mission, and they call them savages. And then clearly, I will say this: I do not expect Apocalypse Now to be a woke movie at all, and sure. I don't want to judge it on no. that scale. I just want to kind of just say as a fact, though, when we talk about it, that what the movie does is it lowers the status of Western men to being, quote unquote, savages, but it never elevates anybody else to being human. Well, and I think you're supposed to see the human side of the war through our PT boat, right? Like that, like it's representing this thing. And that's why I said I was really fascinated by uh, Lance, our surfer character, because I think he goes through the biggest kind of change here. You know, even in this, the sense when they raid the boat, we talked about that a little bit earlier, you're not cringing the same way uh, that we that I at least cringed in Platoon when they go and raid the village. Like they're bl- like literally just blowing up the boat. The only time that you're kind of cringing is when Martin Sheen shoots the woman and kills her so they don't get derailed off their mission. Like the gravitas is more like, oh shit, this guy is dangerous. Not like, what do we just do? Because I think if you would have left that scene, it didn't feel like, oh shit, what do we just do? We just blew up this boat. It was more like, wow, he did something that's extreme. You know what I'm saying? It's, it, it's even in 1979, we should have a perspective on what we did. Like, One of the things that kind of flags with me is like, up until this boat scene where they shoot up the other boat, everyone we've seen on this particular boat has seemed like pretty cool, like yes. pretty numb about it. So it's so weird that one of them just like freaks out and starts shooting everybody because yes. that doesn't seem like it was in any of their character tropes before. They were, there was a numbness to fear. It's not even camaraderie on the boat. It's just sort of like, yeah, we're just doing it. We're, it's work a day. It's like a job. And you you see the effects of the insane part of the war when they get to outside of civilization. And that's when you start to feel more of that energy of like, oh, shit. Like, I love that line when Martin Sheen says, do you know who's in command here? And the guy looks at him in the eyes and is like, yeah. And I feel like what that scene is saying is no one. No, like, yes, I know what – No, we're all – we're all savages now here as we get closer to civil, you know, the outside of civilization. We're all on their level. Yeah, I mean, in a way, this is like an Alice in Wonderland story. You mm. know, that's what I was thinking when you have that scene of Martin Sheen, like, going on a hunt for mangoes with, um, with mm-hmm. the chef. Is you get that really beautiful shot of the two of them really small and then these giant plants around them, these giant leaves. They're just getting dwarfed by everything. And it made me think of like Alice in Wonderland and these giant, you know, gardens surrounded by giant flowers. And you're on this trek. And it's that scene you're talking about when he's like looking for the commanding officer by the bridge, by this like almost Sisyphean task. Yeah. Every day they like try to protect the bridge and build it back. And every right. day it gets destroyed. You know, he turns it into this like very surreal scene where you even here, let's listen to a clip of it. Because what I want people to picture is you're looking at this bridge. There's these strings of lights kind of heading up to a peak, forming the outline of a circus tent. And then they even layer in a little bit of circus music and a little bit of like Star Wars lasers. That's, you know, it's fascinating because you always have a great ear and you're listening for music. And I found myself now uh, listening a lot more to music. And this movie, I think, 
is scored wonderfully. Like there's um, even uh, this scoring uh, when they're going upriver, almost before they hit uh, this kind of outpost, where it's this like kind of driving synth music that really is unnerving. And I would argue made me feel the most uncomfortable. It was all through music. And I think the opening shot with the doors, you know, the end scene where they're killing Kurtz, like music plays such an interesting part in this. And it's actually, I think one of the things that I found myself really leaning in towards. And that was fascinating hearing the circus music, like just distilled. I remember that sequence making me feel uneasy, but not really piecing it together with that. It was the music. Yeah, It's so like it, it's so creepy, horror. Yeah. And I, I love the drone music at the end when he's like leaving the compound, leaving yeah. Kurtz's compound. And I mean, there's a story where it took them forever to even find the exact right flight of the Valkyries Oh, really? because they wanted like this perfect tone. They couldn't afford to actually, they probably could if like, you know, Coppola wasn't like importing steaks every day. Right. Um, to like hire an orchestra but they were looking for the right version of it so it would sound exactly right and trying to choreograph it and it was apparently wow. really hard to get the perfect version of that song there's something kind of like creepy and strange and complicated about picking a song that represents Nazis to be like here's the Americans coming to freak people out and there is something interesting because there's something so triumphant about it too that that scene is you know I think probably one of the most memorable scenes in modern cinema, right? Like, I think, like, that, like, I think the first time I ever heard Flight of the Valkyries was in seeing this scene. And... I think uh, I'm a Bugs Bunny person, but yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe (laughs) I did hear it before there. And it does something interesting. It does show you this, like, it's American spirit coming through, you know, we're taking it on and, uh, and, you know, and then destroying everything. It's, you know, again, going back to cowboys and Indians and it's a, it is like, America's here to save the day. It's at least very West. This is the song of the West. This is the West coming in with all of our West grandeur. One of the moments I do love, and I don't know how believable it is, is just, you know, Robert Duvall drinking a cup of coffee during the madness of that scene, like in the plane with a cup of coffee, just slowly sipping it. I was like, oh, I I love that Duvall character. I mean, and I think maybe that's what this movie is better at, is creating these really interesting characters. Yeah, I like the Duvall character a lot because he seems to remind me the most of something like a Catch-22. Like the Duvall character, I think, is exactly the tone I would have wanted from this movie. Mm -hmm. And then we have sort of like the drone metal sheen and drone metal Brando. But you know who actually the Duvall character reminded me of in a lot of the the action scenes is you reminded me of Buster Keaton. Like there's these explosions happening everywhere and he's not even reacting. Oh, I mean when everyone, yeah, whatever. When everyone hits the ground, uh, you know, like it was such a great scene. Everyone almost drops out of frame and he's still standing there perfectly fine. It's, and just him taking off his shirt through it. Yeah. It's a, it's a very, it's a very ballsy performance. And I think it's like, I love Robert Duvall and I, I, I still enjoy watching him in, in whatever he's got going on. I know he's done a lot more Old West films recently. I'd almost argue that the boat people are arguably less defined. Like, I I don't know the difference. I couldn't tell you the difference between any of them except to say that this one guy was a surfer. You know, Yeah, this guy's a cook, that guy's a surfer, that guy's a kid, that guy's the captain. Yeah, it doesn't, they don't have, like, big, bold personalities. I think the big, bold personalities are really served for two characters. I mean, it's, it's Duval and it's Hopper. I mean, oh, and Brando. You know, I, I mean, I guess if you even talk about the plot, like, what is the plot? Like, he gets the mission, he goes up river, and but there's a lot of nothing in the center. It's a lot of atmosphere. It's a lot of voiceover dialogue. But there's, I mean, if you would describe it, like, I mean, you could take out 
the scene where they go see the Playboy bunnies, it wouldn't, it doesn't affect anything really. Yeah. You know, what's so weird to me is like after going through as much of the list as we already have, you know, I've always thought of Apocalypse Now as like this kind of singular achievement. And because of everything we've been doing, I see so many influences in Apocalypse Now that I feel like I missed. Mm. You know, like, um, for example, the dialogue, the dialogue, like here, here's a quote of the dialogue. And when I hear this dialogue, all I think of is double indemnity. How many people had I already killed? There were those six that I knew about for sure. Close enough to blow their last breath in my face. But this time, it was an American and an officer. Well, you know, I think it's interesting we talk about that, you know, someone was writing this voiceover narration after they shot the film. Because the whole time I'm watching... Martin Sheen, I'm like, how hard is it to act when you have all this VO? Because are you trying to convey stuff? And it seems like they just didn't have that many dialogue scenes. Like this movie is more visually, I would put it more in the camp of 2001. We're just going to find this thing. We hear a signal in space. We're going out to get it. And we're going to go through different levels to get there. And like, and this is the same thing. I like that 2001 analogy. I think that's really dead on. Because it does capture this idea that Sheen is absolutely disconnected from everybody. Right. He's not having conversations with people on the boat. He doesn't care. He doesn't care that anybody else on the boat is dead or alive. And when anybody dies, he also doesn't care. No. I mean, except for the scene where the captain tries to stab him on the spear, which I think is so gory that I do love that. (laughs) I love that like this captain who's been pretty calm the whole time and pretty like, here's the rules, blah, 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 is suddenly in his last seconds of life like, oh, you're dead, you motherfucker. Fuck you. I hate you. Yeah. Well, I mean, he does have that moment where he sees uh, the chef, his head cut off when he's a prisoner of Kurtz and he's like, Oh, uh," and there's part of me that a doesn't fully buy it because like, this is a man who has been so hardened by war. It's probably, he's not even really connected with ultimately Um, maybe just the brutality of the head or the surprise of it. But then he goes to being a Superman, like a minute later. Exactly. Like that head scene just reminded me of Coppola being like, Horse had worked in Godfather. Let's do it again, guys. <laughs> I mean, and by the way, on the level of like things happening that look visual, but you're like, okay, can I just roll my eyes very big at the puppy? I'm just going to roll my eyes very big. Okay. At the puppy. <laughs> you know, and again, the puppy is a little ham fisted and I don't know exactly what they're trying to say with it. Like, you know, finding beauty and in, 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 in this world where there's so much death, but I also think it's like, You know, I feel the same way about the tiger. You know, we're in this world where it's like everything is dangerous. But you know what? At the end of the day, animals are even more dangerous than we are. You know, it's like there's a a couple of things that are like, like that feel a little film student-y. Like, see what I did there? Did you see what I did? Yeah, you know, I almost wish that the AFI list would let us put documentaries on it. Mm. Because if so, I would have Hearts of Darkness on here before I would have uh, Apocalypse Now, honestly. Because I think Hearts of Darkness says more about American movie culture, about what we value as like hard work. More more so even than Apocalypse Now does. You know, I think that there's something. Here's a clip I wanted to play because I'm just also just trying to get in this mindset of Francis Ford Coppola. You know, you mentioned really briefly that Martin Sheen had a heart attack, which, you know, he was 36 years old. He's not in bad shape. He has this heart attack making the movie so bad that he gets the last rites read to him because everybody thinks he's going to die. And when you have Francis Ford Coppola talking about it, he's mainly just worried about himself. They didn't know Marty's a young man. He probably would be able to be up and about in three weeks. 
I said, could he do non-strenuous work such as just close-up, sitting and acting? He said, possibly yes. That's all I need to hear from the doctor. So what's going on in fucking Tradewinds is fucking gossip. Gossip. That gossip can finish me off. Because if UA hears that it's eight weeks, UA with a $27 million negative is going to force me to complete it with what I've got. And I don't have the movie yet. Right. All right, now you understand exactly. Yes. If Marty dies, I want to hear that everything's okay until I say Marty is dead. You got it? Right. If it's not done, man, ship the whole office out of here. Let me ask you a question, Amy, because talking about this, I'm kind of realizing there's a lot of similarities between Coppola and one of your favorite directors, Mr. Uh, James Cameron. And I feel like Cameron is the same level of person. Titanic is this disaster that goes, you know, off the rails. And, you know, is it going to be a disaster? What is it about Coppola versus Cameron in your mind that makes them different? Because I see the same person here. I see Do unbridled you? ego and a belief in their ability. And I also see film that I love, I'm saying on both sides, that are ultimately very simplistic in certain levels, you know, but yet they culturally connect on such a major way. I, I, I think they're actually, I wouldn't have thought this too much before today, they're very similar filmmakers in attitude and in the films that they made. Oh no, that actually terrifies me because you're right. I am trying to think about what the difference is and why like, I'm so turned off from a Coppola. Because Coppola would have wrote that letter to the LA Times that, that Cameron wrote when the Titanic came out. Like, This is a guy who's screaming and do it again and fall in again and let's do this and break the boat. We'll make a boat. We, we don't care. We're going underwater. We're fucking shooting it. You know, it's like, or that's the energy you have to have when making something that is visually unlike anything else that you've ever seen. You're right. I don't know. I don't know. That's a really good question because I am so profoundly uncomfortable, I guess, with lionizing this personality. Right. And I don't know why I'm okay with it with Cameron. I really can't <laughs> figure it out. And I mean, the hypocritical answer might just be that I like his films more. Well, are you arguing to a certain sense? And I, I feel like I'm not trying to put this on you, but in our conversations, I think that there is an energy that you are not always responding to very intensely masculine films, right? And I feel like this is an era where, you know, it's like these directors were like, we're men and we're making movies about men and war. You know, it's like there, there is an energy to a lot of these films. I think Taxi Driver falls right into that same thing. I think that is definitely really true. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot in the weeks between when, like, we record is I've been thinking about the fact that even prepping for this Apocalypse Now episode and even prepping for Taxi Driver – I was thinking a lot about, like, bringing myself to this film, like, really trying to mm -hmm. be, like, I understand that this film is important and I want to try to bend myself and get it and really be able to do it justice. And I was also thinking, why am I so uncomfortable about doing that for films that haven't had the same sort of, like, vaulted relationship? You know, this, the kind of films that I really love. Like, yeah. Like The Princess Bride. Do you know what I mean? A hundred percent. I'm right with you. Yeah. Like, why am I spending so much energy of my life being, like, figure out why Apocalypse Now is good and less energy being like, hey, can we talk about how The Princess Bride could maybe be up here and how maybe we shouldn't be like putting machismo on such a big platform? Well, and I'm so uncomfortable with that. Like it's it's hard for me to still even want to do that. I would even want to say things like, I really love Clueless. I really love like like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And I think there's so much masculinity and I'm mad at myself for how uncomfortable I am sticking up for stuff that I feel like hasn't gotten a fair shake. Well, I'm right with you. I mean, these are movies that you've referenced and you talk about that I have such a fondness and love for. And these are not movies that 
were defining for me, like Taxi Driver, Apocalypse Now. These are not movies that I saw as a 14-year-old that I was like, yes, you know. Uh, I think a lot of filmmakers who make movies now or probably made movies in the 90s definitely came out of this school. It is interesting. I think as a culture, we're, you know, slowly making these steps to open ourselves up to different types of films. Like for so long, these have been on the pedestal of the greatest American films. We've made more. um, But yet I think that, you know, this list we've talked about many times is not reflective of – people of color, women, different voices in many respects. You know, uh, if we're putting a time capsule in the ground saying these are our favorite movies, they should be representing so many different viewpoints. Like, I don't think you would ever see a movie like this again, you know, uh, as, as far as far as scope, you know, just thinking about the insurance of it all, like multiple helicopters in the air kind of landing. And like I said, and boats coming into shore, I think you would never get anyone to finance that. Um, so on that level, it's impressive. Elon but, Musk would do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I do I do think that the, what you're saying is valid. Um, yeah, it's like, you know what kept running through my head as I was prepping for this episode? Mm-hmm. Is that line from Fight the Power, that song, Fight the yeah, Power? Yeah, yeah. Where they say, Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. Yeah. I mean, I really love Elvis. But mm-hmm. to me, this is kind of my Elvis, and Taxi Driver is kind yeah. of my Elvis I think that we can talk about Scarface in this way too. To certain people, it's like, oh, Scarface. You know, it's like it's it's odd what we put on pedestals. Like, what becomes culturally acceptable? You know, and did Apocalypse Now set us back in a weird way by showing war in a way that it took until you know Oliver Stone makes these movies that show war differently, or even Terrence Malick to a certain degree. You know, they all share similarities. They're all meditative. They are all, you know, showing something. I think that this movie I found surprisingly light, especially in watching others. Like, because it's like, how much plot is there here? There's not much. Light on plot, big on spectacle. And going back to that scene that I want to talk about a little bit is that scene where the Playboy bunnies come in. I mean, that set is gorgeous like when they dock their boat there and what's going on i'm like whoa i i I think i just it was like i i can't eat me yeah and what's sort of funny is as they approach that scene uh here's another thing that that reminded me of which is king kong listen to these drums but i love this idea that in both of these two movies you have like the boat with Carl Denham, you have this boat over here approaching some sort of spectacle involving underdressed women that they don't quite know what it is until they finally arrive. This is interesting because I think a lot of the times you view USO as um, Bob Hope. And this is a little bit dirtier, too, uh, you know, to see the Playboy bunnies there for whatever reason. Yeah, with dancing the Playboy and, bunny logo on the helicopter. And teasing them in a weird way. It's like you are like hanging meat in front, and it goes back to what the chef says when he talks about like going to be in the army, and they had this amazing cut of prime rib that's beautifully marbleized, and they put it in this vat and boiled it, and you know it's like it's the same tease. It's like look at these beautiful women, you can't get them, but it's also like you know it's kind of hanging, it's it's torturing these animals to a certain degree, you know, or 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 creating this energy to them that make them go crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's so weird. There's, I feel really torn on this. I mean, there's that moment where you hear somebody in the crowd be like, fuck you, bitch, or something. Yeah. You're like, they're mad at them for being there. Yes. When I'm sort of like, those girls just risk their lives also coming all this way by helicopter yeah. to do this, you know, and it's like, fuck you, bitch. They were also, by the way, like, two of them are real playmates. Um, right. They were actually like, right. hello, we are playmates of the year. 
you know, I was going through like an interview with Milius, and here's what he had to say about it, which I don't know. I feel super confused about this. Let's talk it out. Can you tell us about how you invented the Playboy bunnies? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to go to the How, how did you do that? How did you invent that? Well, that, that was just logical. I mean, when you saw the whole idea of these shows, you know, where these incredibly sexy girls are brought there and, you know, displayed to thousands of men who may die the next day, what's going to stop them? from taking those girls, you know? Why, why wouldn't they take those girls, you know? And th- that must have happened many times where it kind of got out of hand, you know? Did you ever hear that it had, or you? I didn't ever hear that it had. In fact, most of the people told me that um, they were just so happy to see, you know, a, a girl, a girl from home, gyrating, looking sexy, and all that kind of thing. and and. Just, you know, so happened to th- just to see that was enough that made them feel good. But they did say there was a desire, you know, why don't we just go take these girls, you know, or something like this. And, and the whole idea that these guys would run into that and they would be tempted because these are the sirens. Huh. Interesting. I mean, like, uh, <laughs> Huh. I mean, okay, here's what flags for me in that. By the way, he's like, why wouldn't they take them? Yeah. And then, okay, I kind of just made it up. So you're getting this idea of a guy who's like, I'm imagining what it's like, bro. Oh, well, you know, it may not be exactly accurate. Okay, it just creeps me out. I mean, yes, this is a movie that doesn't have, like, women speaking again. But just the idea that they're, like, that he's calling them, like, the sirens. Like, they're actively mm-hmm. there to sort of tempt men and ruin their lives. I'm like, yeah. okay, dude. And, 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 and that they are, they are something to be taken, like just by being there, which is a very rapey idea. Yeah. And part of what they cut out of Apocalypse Now is more rapey culture. Because what happens later on in this movie is that, um, is that Martin Sheen kind of bones this French woman who's sort of doing it to like steal stuff from the boat. And then to make it up to the boat guys, he comes across the helicopter full of playboy bunnies who have run out of gas and he kind of wingmans all of the playboy bunnies into basically having to hook up with the guys in order to get the gas in order to leave which i'm just like i'm glad you cut that out but also that's your heart of darkness coppola that's your heart of darkness milius i see you you know yeah 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 that i mean it's not a solid narrative of what we're saying and i think when you say and i've heard coppola say like it's an ambiguous movie you get stuff out of it that you want i don't I think that's a cheat because I think when you're making a movie, you should be understanding what you're saying. I, I get like ambiguity in character motivation, but like, what are you saying with that scene? Like it doesn't necessarily show fault. It almost seems like they're justified, like that they would go crazy, but why would you tease them? Like it's, there's so many levels to that. That's weird. Yeah. And then also you have the idea that when they were shooting this movie, you know, there was a hurricane. I think it was like Typhoon mm-hmm. Olga yeah. maybe. And everybody got locked up in this hotel and one of the Playboy Bunnies was there and she had to lock herself in a bathroom because she was so freaked out by the crew acting super rapey. Yeah. I can imagine. Of course. You know, I will say I did a tour with the USO. It was one of the most fulfilling experiences I've had in in my life. Um, and I will also say that the USO is very – like. I know what they bring people, but it's it's not like that. They're not like dangling. The USO presenting like a strip club, you know, vibe, you know, or something like that. You know, it, it's a little odd on all sides, but I, I, yeah, maybe yeah. I'm wrong. I don't know. I have as, as much experience fighting as John Milius, you know, but I, I like my experience with the USO was it was a lot more 
thought out and 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 different than that. Yeah, like if we're gonna use our Greek metaphor analogy from myth here, maybe instead of calling the women the sirens, you should call the USO like Tantalus because they're the people who shipped them in, man. Yeah, you know, I want to talk about one thing before we get into the review. I have actually two things, but I think we have to talk a little bit about uh, Hopper and uh, Brando. Like, and I think Brando, this is one of his iconic performances and it's the, I don't know, beginning. It's probably mid off the rails Brando. They say why. Well, why they want to terminate my command. We probably talk all day about Marlon Brando, but... Uh, I just want to give you a couple of little facts. So Brando at this movie is coming off of The Godfather. And, you know, he's supposed to be this kind of green beret soldier type of guy. But he shows up 300 pounds. None of the clothes can fit him. Right. He doesn't even show up on the days that he's supposed to work. And he's worked out this insane contract where he's getting paid uh, three million dollars for four weeks of work. And he'll only work on weekdays and he can't work past 530 at night. And, you know, so at this point, like he's already putting so many parameters on a movie that is off the rails. And then apparently he read Hearts of Darkness the night before he started shooting and he shaved his own head, didn't tell anybody that he was going to shave his own head. And, you know, the cinematographer is kind of shooting him in a way to make him look a little bit more um, less gelatinous, I guess. So, you know, he was because he's I think when you're reading through all the stuff and you're hearing him through the whole movie, you're leading up to this guy that you would expect to be the ultimate badass, you know? And, uh, but it kind of works. Like when you see him, you don't go, oh, he seems out of shape. It, it, it kind of works. I don't know. He feels king-like. Uh, yeah, I mean, kings can be gigantically fat. I'm thinking yeah. of like Henry VIII. He has a presence. Yes. Personally, I just enjoy the idea of him being like an asshole on the set because I feel like the set could have used other assholes to balance it out. It's like oh, yeah. Pokemon or something. They're like fighting it out. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but yet it kind of creates this really enigmatic performance and, and legendary performance uh, because of the lack of him. And you're being told about him so much more through Dennis Hopper, who it's just an interest. I, I think these two characters are so interesting. They're the last two characters that we meet. And, and I would argue it's probably the two characters besides Duval that you remember the most. These two characters never on screen together because Brando hates uh, Hopper, because apparently Coppola's giving uh, Brando grief about not reading Hearts of Darkness. And and there's a miscommunication because uh, Hopper had gotten this, uh, this book. Uh, this book was from the special services guys. They said, read this book as a red book. And so now while Brando is getting grief about not reading Hearts of Darkness from Coppola, here comes Dennis Hopper going, hey, did you read the book, meaning the special services book? And Brando's like, why are you giving me this shit? I'm getting it from the director. I don't need to get it from you. But he, he, there was a miscommunication. <laughs> and Dennis Hopper is kind of a drunk and kind of crazy at this time, just annoys the shit out of Brando. And Brando's like, I don't want to do scenes with him. So now they're kind of independently doing their own thing. And this movie is happening by happenstance. These two great performances, not written this way, but that's what we get. We get these two separate men doing two separate things, uh, and yet it kind of cuts together well. It's 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 the most memorable section of the film. Yeah, I mean, my favorite uh, Hopper quote here is when he's describing the Brando character yeah. because he's basically describing it exactly the way that like a woman would if she's in an abusive relationship. The heads. You're looking at the heads. 
Sometimes he goes too far, you know. He's the first one to admit it. He's going crazy. Wrong, wrong. If you could have heard the man uh, just two days ago, if you could have heard a man, God, you were going to call him crazy? <laughs> I love that. I also love listening to Dennis Hopper kind of talk about his problems that he had in the film and doing these monologues. And I really appreciate Francis Wright. Even though he does drop it on you sometimes, and it does take you sometimes an idiot like me a whole day to learn it. See, why did you say that to him in the scene? Who? Something clever like that. When he says, who are you? Why did you say, who are you? Because I haven't learned my lines yet. I know, you've had him for five days. (laughs) You know, I feel like he is that character. I feel like he is the guy that, you know, like... Kurtz would have nothing to do with his character in the film. And I think Brando would have nothing to do with uh, Hopper in this film because it feels like the same kind of energy. It's like (laughs) it is like you're here, but I don't want you to be here. Yeah, it's like uh, putting two cats in a house. And they're both like, no, 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 no. There's only room for one of us. (laughs) You know, by the way, when he's like describing all those heads, we do need to talk about the production designer Mm. because you've heard this story. I mean, when you look at this whole temple scene where Brando is living. There are dead bodies everywhere. It's really just like, it's like a Halloween house, you know, Mm. just dead bodies as decor. He actually tried to get dead bodies for this. Jesus. As design and succeeded. He found a dead guy. He found like a dead body dude. And this guy was like, yeah, I can hook you up with some dead bodies. He brought him a pile of dead bodies. He brought him a pile of corpses. And then the cops show up and the cops are like, what are these corpses? And he's like, oh, I got them from a guy. And it turns out the guy was like a grave robber. His oh, whole job was God. like digging up corpses and selling them to people. I mean, Well, now I got to take back my thought that this has the best set deck of all time. <laughs> but that is part of what was going on. I mean, like Coppola was like – Crazy. I get why the guy would do it because Coppola was asking the same production designer for things like, can I get a thousand blackbirds? And this guy was like, I guess I could take some pigeons and I could dye them black <laughs> and I could make them beaks it's, out of cardboard. It's like that scene from Scrooge where he's like, can we glue the antlers onto the mouse? Uh. Exactly. Like this guy starts to lose his mind. Like the way he describes his life when he's making this set in particular, he says, I was living the house of death as I was making it. It was such a low wow. level in my life that putting blood on staircases and rolling heads down steps seemed natural to me. By the way, also, if we're talking about expenses in this movie, yeah. they had a full-time snake man who just would show up every day <laughs> with like a sack full of snakes in case they needed them. Well, let me talk to you about the end. Opening shot is amazing. This kind of salvaged opening that they got, which is the trees are on fire. We're seeing glimpses of um, Martin Sheen's face. You know, he's conflicted in the bed. The last shot of the film is the temple image. It's Martin Sheen's face again. We're seeing, you know, in the background, like the fires of the trees. And then there's the temple face and Martin Sheen's face. What do you think that that represents? I'm asking because I don't I don't know. I'm just what do you think that that final image is to you? You know, I don't really know. I mean, they're shooting both of them like they are ancient gods. Mm. So there is something about, you know, the way the shadow hits them. They look yeah. very, they look very like proto-Indiana Jonesy almost. Yeah, you know? I, it feels like I was on the, the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland. I mean, like a certain way like that. Yeah. Do you, do you feel it's like he killed a god, so now he is a god? Yeah. I mean, like, is there a world where Sheen just goes back? Back to civilization again? Probably. I mean, probably. Well, he not. says he can't. Never, I mean, he says he can't go back. But yet, yeah. he got back on the boat to head back to civilization, which is something that I think he's conflicted with the entire time. He could have gone there and just made Marlon Brando's character even more powerful. But yet, he did it. He did the job, 
and he's going home and he's becoming more and more broken and he'll never really go home. He'll just die here on another mission until he becomes unuseful like Kurtz and and dies. Yeah, well, like the way Kurtz wants to die in action, it's like he wants to die in action. Because what we really don't see Martin Sheen's character doing in this movie is questioning his order. No. Not really. Not at all. He doesn't question it. Like, he shows up, and Kurtz kind of tries. You can yeah. do he's, like, poking around the edges, seeing if he can well, that's bend him, but he, does, he doesn't really wrestle with it. He doesn't, and, and he doesn't even feel conflicted when he's there. He doesn't feel conflicted. And, that, and that's an interesting thing. It's just like he is a blunt instrument. All right, well, Amy, a um, couple questions for you. First of all, what's a bad review here? There were a bunch, actually. Frank Rich hated this movie from the New York Times, yeah, right? Frank Rich hated this movie. A lot of people hated this movie. I think a lot of people kind of went after this film pretty brutally. The one that really popped out to me is actually Gary Arnold of the Washington Post. Uh, he says, <clears throat> The atmosphere of Francis Coppola's lamentable magnum opus Apocalypse Now, a ruinously pretentious and costly allegorical epic about war in Vietnam, recalls nothing so much as the notorious campfire scene in Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles. Whoa. Which, boom, let's just drop what that is right now, by the way. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, he says, it's the cumulative effect generated by mixing richly portentous imagery with absurdly portentous prose, starkly portentous sound, and flatulently portentous music. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Among the other insults he also squeezes in here, he says that Coppola manages to transform himself into a morbidly pretentious Japanese director. Um and that, like, it seems as though Coppola, when he has the line, it's judgment that defeats us, is basically, like, muttering out loud, apologizing to the audience. That's hilarious. Saying, like, don't judge me, bro. <laughs> uh, so that was a negative review. That is. Uh, well, let's talk about when this uh, movie came out. Uh, that means it's time for some Year Facts. facts. So in 1979, the cost of an average house is about $58,000. You're talking about a gallon of gas being about 79 cents. And this is a year where a lot of big films are coming out. Superman the movie, Rocky II, Alien, uh, Star Trek the motion picture, Moonraker, the Muppet movie, Deer Hunter, Kramer versus Kramer. So again, another year where you have like these big, big films out there. And musicians, we're talking about the Bee Gees uh, with their song, Love You Inside Out. Uh, Gloria Gaynor is singing I Will Survive this year. Donna Summer is doing hot stuff. Michael Jackson is on the scene here. TV shows, All My Children is big. MASH, The Price is Right, Happy Days. There was the Three Mile Island nuclear accident. Uh, Trivial Pursuit launched in the stores. Uh, Pink Floyd released The Wall. And Russia invades Afghanistan for the first time in history in 1979, and Sony invented the Walkman. This is a big a kind of turning point. This is the end of the 70s. I feel like all the things I just referenced feel very 80s to me. You know, this is like the beginning of the 80s. It sounds really fun when you put oh, it that yeah. way. I'm like, yeah, partying it up. We're going to walk on the street. We're going to listen to some Donna Summer and our eardrums. Like, the future is now, yo. Uh, just to note uh, that this movie did win an Oscar for Best Cinematography and Best Sound. And it won another 18 awards and 31 nominations. It is on IMDb's top-rated movies listed as 51. So, uh, you know, on AFIs, it's number 30, which is interesting. And uh, the London Film Critics Society uh, said this is their top film of the year of 1980. So that's a little interesting facts about this film. But 
the only true judge of this movie is, is there a Simpsons? Is there? Oh, my God. There are so many Simpsons. There are so, just tons of Simpsonses. I, like, could barely pick a Simpsonses, and then I just, I picked this one. All this right. is from the episode Kiss Kiss Bang Bangalore, where Homer Simpson goes to India and becomes a god, and his family tries to track him down by going up a riverboat. So, Mr. Burns, you're saying my dad has gone insane and thinks he's a god and broken off all contact with the outside world? I told you Simpson was a poor choice, sir. You know, Smithers, I told you so as a brother. His name is Shut the Hell Up. By the way, really quick, because I didn't get to mention this, um, you know, you see, like, a reference to the local people in that Simpsons clip. Yeah. The local people that you have here at the end were, like, a local tribe of headhunters. They are called the Ifuegos. Whoa. Yeah, they were still hunters, headhunters up until World War II, and they got them involved with being extras on the set by promising them betel nuts to eat and live animals that they could sacrifice and when they all got there Brando threw them this welcome party he was like welcome guys yeah. and the way he um, celebrated was he had fireworks which they really loved and he had ice sculptures of Oscars which they probably had no idea That's what those hilarious. are uh, and then Coppola apparently taught everybody to sing Light My Fire you know, it's interesting you talk about this and, and thinking about it more. It really is colonization, you know, um, is happening here. These people went to a foreign country and remade it like Hollywood instead of just shooting and respecting the land that they were in. Um, and I feel like that's what you're feeling throughout this film is, you know, digging the pool, making the Oscars out of ice. You know, it's like we went there and basically just set up Camp Hollywood where they were actually yeah, shooting. Yeah, and they, you know, befriended like – Amelda and Ferdinand Marcos, the very cruel dictators of the Philippines, to the point that they would go over to their mansion and watch a little bit of Apocalypse Now there. And, like, apparently wow. Amelda Marcos would show up all dressed in Chanel. All of her ladies-in-waiting would be in Chanel. They had a giant, huge table filled with candy bars. I mean, you're aligning your, yourselves with some yeah, kind of creeps. some questionable things. Um I just want to say a big thank you to uh, one of our listeners, Morgan Messenheimer, who helped with uh, some research this week. She sent me some cool little things that I did not know. So a big thanks to her. Um, now, Amy, the question is, does this belong on the AFI Top 100 list? Is there a film that you can think that's more deserving than Apocalypse Now that goes on this list? I think we talked about it a little bit. Yes, you do. Yeah, if documentaries are allowed. I mean, can I just say that 30 seems really high? I would argue 30 seems pretty high as well. And I think, you know, what I'm realizing is these are films that we're just told are our classics. But are we, you know, are we really questioning why they are our classics? I I do believe that this movie belongs on this list. And I think I feel it the same way because of Titanic. The scope and the bigness of it is something that I feel like is – I've yet to see. I didn't fully like Platoon, and I liked. I, I enjoyed watching this movie more, but I like what Platoon had to say. I, I would say definitely lower, but I think there is something from a filmmaking standpoint, not knowing the behind the scenes, not knowing any of that, it is something to behold, and it is something that still to this day, I was like, wow, I'm impressed by this film. And I can't say that about every film that we've watched yeah. in this list. Yeah, it's like, this is something you should watch. Yes. I can be on board with that. I don't know if this is something that I would say has to be canonized. Okay. But, you know, I think part of why I'm uncomfortable with canonizing stuff like this is what does it say about us that this is what we value most? A right. director who, like, put his ego on the line and, like, you know, made the basket. It's Fine. the American dream though. It's yeah. like, you know, I believed in myself and I became the winner, you know, it's a, you exactly. know, but that's behind the scenes. I do think in front of the camera, 
It's like a Greek. It's like the Odyssey. It's but it's, it, it's behind and in front. It's right. it's him, and it's the story he thought was worthy of telling. This right. is the story he liked, and it mimics his own life because this is what we do. We really love stories about like dudes on a boat doing something. Right. And like, okay, fine. What if we loved him a little less? You know, maybe part of the dude on boat thing for me, though, is just that I already have my favorite dudes on boats movie, which is Aguirre, The Wrath of God with Klaus Kinski and Werner Herzog. And it's, you know, foreign, so it can't make it on this list. But that is an epic dudes on boats movie. It comes out before Apocalypse Now. There's monkeys in it. That is my dude on a boat. Well, if you were talking about dudes on boats, I have to talk about Cabin Boy then because that (laughs) is my dude on a boat movie. It's a classic, goddammit. But I will say one thing to your point about war from other films. This is not a traditional war movie in the sense that this is not men having camaraderie. This is not men knowing how to love each other or serve each other. This is about soldiers who are professional soldiers who are working to do their job, or at least that's what our main motivator is. And it's different than any other war movie in the sense that I don't feel a camaraderie, a brothership, a fellowship at all. Um, that is also true. Yeah. That is also true. I think just like the question that's going through my head is – even in me, I have this innate thing of being like, hard is good. Right. But like, why is hard good? What if hard is also dumb? Believe me, that's an argument that I have often. <laughs> All right. Now, Amy, I would normally say it's time for us to roll the die to find out the next film we're going to watch. But here's the deal. There was a lot of uh, hubbub online that we are somehow faking this dice roll. So what we did was we decided that we would tape a dice roll, put it up online. Now, We did this, so many mistakes here. First of all, we put it online. (laughs) People thought that was the next movie. It was not the next movie. It was this movie that we're doing now. Then we realized that when we did it for camera, we read off the wrong AFI list, so we told people the wrong movie. We got stage fright, which is so weird. I know. We should just be rolling the dice in the privacy of our studio. And by the way, what are we gaining from gaming the die? We are very honest with you. We wanted to go see 2001. We saw it, and we we could tell you where we want to go, but we are legitimately rolling the die. There's, if you look at the the the, the films we've been watching, there's no, they we're not like drawing these crazy things. We're like, oh wow, how could it have ever landed there? It, it's, it's not happening. So anyway, also I believe in curses. I, me too. We got to roll that die. <laughs> so um, we do have our hundred sided die. We already did roll it. So we do know that next week's movie is Lord of the Rings. The Fellowship of the Ring, the first one. It's available on Netflix. Uh, We're not watching the extended cut. No, no, no. Just the two-hour and 50-minute cut. (laughs) Yeah, the the uh, tasteful small one after Apocalypse Now. Yes. Uh, And uh, so get on that. It's on Netflix. You can watch Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Well, one of the things I'm fascinated by in Lord of the Rings is the names. I mean – the names of the characters, the name of the beasts, they are all so wonderfully specific and weird. And I would ask you, maybe you could come up with your own creature and tell me what that creature is. Like, if you were to come up with, like, Balrog, you'd say Balrog is a cave monster who uh, wields, like, a whip of fire. Like, I want you to create your own Lord of the Rings monster. Just very short and sweet name and something he does or she does. Well, I'm going to come up with the monster called the Sheer. (laughs) (laughs) You'll find him in the Glen of Sheer where the monster, the Sheer, lurks with a pile of coffee beans. Oh, I like it. I like a coffee bean. I love a coffee bean. (laughs) Do better than me, y'all. The number to call is 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824 to name your monster. We'll see you next week for Unspooled, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings. 
This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Ah, uh, yes. I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.